0: Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. That is cruxnow.com. I am also the host of this show, Crux's flagship signature showcase, weekly video production, also our only one. Last week in the church, this is the show, where we sort of rumble around in the fridge, take out some leftover Catholic news, some of it at least a week old, but we put it in the skillet, we sprinkle on some secret spices and the Crux brand secret sauce, serve it up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. Oh, Canada. This is sort of Canada week at the Vatican. All this week, delegation of representatives of Canada's indigenous peoples, and in particular, survivors of abuse at Canada's church-run residential schools, are in Rome for meetings with Pope Francis. All of this geared to what the indigenous expect to be a significant papal apology for the church's role in what a commission in Canada in 2015 described as cultural genocide. Second, Ukraine again. Alas, the Putin war in Ukraine continues to grind on, and so the Vatican and the Pope's role in it all continues to be in the news. Pope Francis has addressed Ukraine once again. He's engaged in a symbolic gesture of concern, we're also going to talk about the role of the Greek Catholic Church in all of this, which is significant. Then, presidents abound this week. Pope Francis, in addition to dealing with the crisis in Ukraine, also met with the presidents of Burundi and Lebanon, both countries going through their own crises. And it's it's just another page from the, geez, I'm glad I'm not Pope files. Fourth, The Sotilitium of Christian life, a high-powered, high-octane lay movement in Peru, may be going out of business by Vatican edict. We'll talk about that. Finally, Malta. We are Malta-bound. Pope Francis is heading for the island nation of Malta next weekend. We will unpack the significance of this brief but important journey. That's what we've got for you on the other side, so please do stick around. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Tuesday, March 29th. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Ours, I need to tell you, was glorious. Look, here's the thing. This is a deeply screwed up, fallen, sin-stained world. And if you need proof of that, you need look no farther than Ukraine right now. But every now and then, every now and then, you get this sort of one glorious moment that just reminds you of what life can be at its best. We kind of had that this weekend. On Sunday, we had some of our closest friends over to lunch. It was one of those, you know, epic Roman lunches that stretches over six hours. It involves multiple courses and free-flowing wine and amaro and all kinds of things. By the way, I think the version of Spaghetti Al Amatriciana I served up on Sunday was one of my best. So very proud of that. And then no sooner had everyone finally left than my Kansas Jayhawks took the court with an opportunity to go to the final four and utterly annihilated the University of Miami in the second half, winning 76 to 50. So look, normally when there's a final four and there's only one Catholic team left, I just by default always cheer for the Catholic team. But in this instance, sorry, Villanova, your run is over. KU is coming for you. I really I really feel this is our year. But anyway, point is, for that one sort of twelve hour stretch, life was just grand. And I hope you tasted a little bit of that this weekend too. All right, we begin this week with Canada. The story of Canada's residential schools is one of the most appalling human rights abuses of the last couple of centuries. Basically, what happened is that from 1836 to 1996, Canada created a series of residential schools, so boarding schools basically, and forcibly enrolled about 150,000 children indigenous children in those schools in an effort to what civilize them was the theory the abuse that went on in these schools in terms of physical abuse rape, malnutrition rank neglect was just god-awful now this has been known for a while but what happened recently is that at one of these residential schools the remains of 215 indigenous children who were just tossed unceremoniously into a mass grave and whose bodies told the tale of horrifying abuse and neglect regalvanized the conscience of the nation and because most of these residential schools were run by the catholic church sort of under contract to the government obviously the church is a major player here canada's bishops have apologized repeatedly they've created healing commissions, but the indigenous now want an apology from the top. So this week, uh, representatives of three different indigenous groups, including survivors of abuse at these residential schools, are here in Rome for a series of meetings with Pope Francis. Now, let me emphasize, this is not just a one-off photo op. The Pope is actually going to be meeting, they're here all week, the Pope will be meeting with them at least four times. It is an extraordinary gesture of solicitude and concern from the Vatican and from Pope Francis. It brings to mind four points. One, this, everybody expects Pope Francis is going to deliver the apology that the indigenous want, so this will become part of the evolving story of papal mea culpa's. So far as we know, the first pope because you know in the old days being pope meant never having to say you're sorry, right? You you never admitted error. You never acknowledged bad judgment because that was seen to compromise the dignity and the majesty of the office. So far as we know, the first pope in modern times to actually sort of formally publicly apologize for something was Paul VI. In 1966, he gave a bishop's ring to Archbishop Michael Ramsey of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, and apologized for Catholic mistreatment of Protestants. But it really reached a crescendo under Pope John Paul II, who in many ways was the pope of apologies. John Paul, well, okay, in 1997, I have a friend and colleague, the legendary Vatican writer, Luigi Cataly. He did a book on papal apologies. He counted more than 100. It began in 1979 when he apologized for the church's handling of the Galileo case. And this was 1997. John Paul hadn't even had his great liturgy of repentance in 2000, where he apologized for pretty much everything under the sun. And so Francis has apologized, and Benedict apologized to abuse survivors, and Francis is now doing the same thing. It is another reminder, folks, I suppose, that although we love to style Francis as a maverick, Uh, You know, in many ways, what he's doing is an extension of what came before. All right, secondly, we should note that this visit of the indigenous this week is basically seen as a kind of down payment on a papal trip to Canada. The indigenous don't just want an apology in Rome. They want the pope to come to their country and, in a sense, apologize to the whole nation. It is widely expected Francis will take that trip, could come as early as this summer. Now, another element about all this is that it is also yet another papal meeting with abuse survivors. First such a meeting occurred in the United States in 2008 when Pope Benedict met with a delegation of six abuse survivors at the papal embassy, the Nunciatura, in Washington. And this has become, in a way, now standard papal protocol calls for such a meeting were repeatedly rebuffed under the John Paul years, but now they are, one hates to say this, but they are almost routine. And it is another example of how for the Vatican's legendary stick in the muddiness, you know, that it's just unchanging and eternal, actually, the truth of it is, when they want to, they can change on a dime. That's just, that is how it is. And finally, we should note, that this is also another chapter in the popes kind of on again off again relationship with north america which has never been all that great but you know in this instance it is a clearer demonstration of kind of outreach and concern from the pope and as ever we will see how it goes we'll have full coverage on the on the crux site All right, shifting gears to Ukraine. Pope Francis, in his Sunday Angelus address, once again addressed the crisis in Ukraine. And in fairly dramatic fashion, you heard the Pope saying, basta, basta, which is the Italian for enough. Right, that's enough. It was a kind of visceral, gut-level thing. It it reminded me a bit, Pope Paul VI's famous address to the United Nations in 1965 in that immortal line, guerra non mai piu. Known my pew. Never again, war, never again. And, and so it is yet another demonstration of the Pope's personal concern about all this. But he didn't just restrict himself to words this week, he also engaged in a symbolic gesture of solidarity. The Vatican is donating an ambulance, n- nice, modern, tricked out, fully functional ambulance to Ukraine. But they didn't just put it in a shipping container and, you know, drop it into Kiev or whatever. Actually, the Pope's top charitable official, Polish Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, got behind the wheel and drove the ambulance himself to Ukraine just to make sure that everybody got the point that this is not an item on a checklist, it's not a pro forma thing, but this is the Pope's personal, fairly dramatic concern. Also this week, the University of Notre Dame announced that Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who is the highest-ranking official of the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, is going to be delivering the annual commencement address. Now, under any set of circumstances, Gudziak would have been a no-brainer choice. We're talking about a guy who graduated from Harvard, studied under Henry Nouwen, went on to become the founder of the relaunched Greek Catholic University in Ukraine after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He, He built that university, as he called it, on the wings of two different groups. One, the Ukrainian martyrs. Remember that Ukraine was the most martyred church in percentage terms anywhere in the world in the Soviet era. And then on the disabled, obviously building upon the legacy of Henry Nowy. At the university, they call the disabled professors of human relations. Gutsiak is probably on anybody's top 10 list of most important public intellectuals in the Catholic Church right now. He would be on that list. So under any set of circumstances, this would be a great pick. Obviously, given the context, it is also a powerful statement of concern for Ukraine. And all this leads to a little bit of food for thought, which is from the beginning of this madness, and that's really the only word for it, this madness in Ukraine, one big ticket question has been, what the hell is Putin doing? What, what is he after? Some people think, you know, he's trying to rebuild the old Soviet empire. Some people think he has these mirror visions of reconstructing the old Rus- Russian empire under the Tsar. However, there was a very provocative piece in the New York Times last week by a retired history professor named Jane Burbank, who argued that actually what Putin is trying to do is revive a kind of Eurasian imperial vision for Russia that was very popular in the 1920s and then with the Bolshevik revolution was suppressed for 70 or 80 years, but is now coming back to the fore. Basically, the goal here is to reconstitute the old Mongol Empire radiating out from Eurasia. That was the the largest empire in human history in terms of contiguous land mass, with Russia and Russian orthodoxy at its very core, as a permanent counterweight to the godless decadent egoistic, material, you know, whatever bad word you want to use, West. And according to this point of view, Ukraine is the beginning of a larger campaign to put together this Eurasian empire ruled by Putin and the Kremlin. Now, let's assume that that's true. Does that in any way help explain what he's doing in Ukraine? Well, I would submit that it does. Because if you're looking at the countries of the old Mongol Empire, you're talking about Moldavia, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, you know, some of the Kazakhstan, and so on. All of these countries, what they have in common is that they have no significant Catholic footprint. I mean, there are small Catholic communities in all of these places. And of course, we don't measure importance in the church by size. But nevertheless, in terms of having like the human social capital to really make a difference, there really is only Ukraine. I mean, bear in mind that Ukraine features the only Catholic university between Poland and Japan. It is home to the Greek Catholic Church, the largest of the Eastern churches in union with Rome, features about 5 million followers inside the country and three or 4 million in a diaspora outside. And it punches above its weight significantly. The Greek Catholic Church was a lead actor in the Orange Revolution that swept one pro Moscow regime from power and brought a more pro Western, enlightened, moderate leadership to the country. In the present crisis, they have been a leading voice for Ukrainian independence, Ukrainian nationalism, and resistance to being subjugated to Moscow. My point is that the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine is the only significant source of spiritual resistance to Putin's agenda in his projected empire. And so therefore, I'm not suggesting he went into Ukraine specifically to destroy the Greek Catholic Church, but I'm pretty sure he would take that as a a nice piece of collateral result. And, And therefore, solidarity for the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine. It's not just a matter of, what, Christian solidarity. It also has deep geopolitical and cultural significance. We'll see how it plays out. God bless it. All right, the pope and presidents. This week, Pope Francis met with the presidents of Burundi and of Lebanon. Both countries, by the way, passing through their own via cruces Burundi is now represented by a new president who was trying to do, undo some of the damage of the previous regime, which had one of the worst human rights records anywhere in the world. Recently, the European Union, recognizing those efforts, lifted sanctions on Burundi. But nevertheless, everyone will tell you there is still a long way to go. Burundi is an overwhelmingly Catholic country, about 65% Catholic. And so, obviously, the Catholic Church has to play a major role in that process. And Pope Francis was, you know, in this conversation trying to do what he could to demonstrate support and also, presumably, to hold the new government's feet to the fire. Then, President Michele Aoun of Lebanon was in town. Lebanon is, of course, the most Catholic country in the Middle East in terms of percentage. The, the largest number of Catholics in the Middle East are in G- Egypt, but in terms of percentage of the population, Catholics are about something like 25%, mostly Maronite Catholics in Lebanon, and have always played critical political, social, economic roles. President Ayun himself is a Maronite Catholic, and Lebanon is in absolute free fall, ladies and gentlemen. Lebanon was once the most middle class country in the middle east and beirut was thought of as a crown jewel it was considered the paris of the middle east and all that was true up to like 10 years ago despite the civil war despite it all but now the country is in just economic death grip something like 80 percent of the country has slipped into poverty over just the last five years, and there doesn't seem to be much light at the end of the tunnel. And of course, Lebanon's stability has always been precarious. If Lebanon were to blow up, especially along Muslim-Christian lines, not only could that have wider regional consequences, but we could be right smack dab back into the middle of the clash of civilizations. So Pope Francis obviously wants to do what he can, to try to prevent that from happening. All this to me is just a reminder of why at some point every day I get down on bended knee and thank a loving God that I'm not the Pope. Because think about the mind-bending complexity of what Francis, what any Pope, is trying to deal with right now. The, I mean, the guy just did a major overhaul of the Roman curia and trying to make that stick. He's dealing with the ongoing fallout of the clerical sexual abuse scandal this week. In the meantime, he's trying to bring peace to Ukraine and wave his magic wand over two struggling Catholic countries that are pivotal in their regions. And that's just for breakfast. You know, this is a tough gig, folks. And look, Francis may be too liberal for you. John Paul may have been too conservative for you. Same with Benedict, who knows. But let's at least pause and acknowledge the staggering, staggering complexity that they face. And maybe once in a while, I'm not saying go quiet, just cut them a little slack, you know, because nobody's going to bet 100 on all this stuff. Finally, this week, we shift our gears to Malta. Pope Francis is headed to the island nation of Malta next weekend, April 2nd and 3rd. It's going to be a very quick trip. It's just Saturday, Sunday, right? It's like a weekend outing. And yet if you look at his schedule, he's got like 97 different okay, I'm that that's an exaggeration, but there are a lot of different things. And The significance, of course, Malta is a nation that has disproportionately borne the the brunt of the European migrant and refugee crisis. It's a gateway destination for a lot of migrants and refugees. They go there trying to get someplace else in Europe. It has been hard hit, and it has been a major drain on that country's resources. No doubt that will be a major theme of the papal trip. And among other things, he's going to be visiting a refugee center and spending some time with them. I would note, by the way, that Malta is currently, well, okay, an investment firm in Malta is currently involved in some pretty nasty litigation with the Vatican Bank over the Vatican Bank's claim that it built them out of millions of euro. They're not going quietly into that good night. They are suggesting, the investment firm, is basically that the Vatican screwed the poach that what happened is in the transition from Benedict to Francis the Vatican decided it wanted to back out of some deals and it took a bath financially speaking but that was all part of the contract it's a lot like the london thing right where the prosecution says you stole from us the defense says we had contracts all we did was collect the money we were legally owed under the contracts you yourself signed we'll see how it plays out maybe pope francis can convene some impromptu settlement talks, right, and bring this plane in for a landing. Now, I know I said finally, but really finally, we will end this week in Peru. And the sad story of the Sotolizium of Christian life, this is a major lay movement in Peru founded in the 1970s by a charismatic layman by the name of Luis Fernando Figari. You get that right, Luis Figari? My wife, who's the real Peru expert, has signed off on my pronunciation. So I guess my golden stretch from Sunday is still, my mojo is still running. Anyway, this guy turned out basically to be a snake oil salesman and a serial predator and abuser. These accusations began to surface in the 1990s. Came to a head in the 2000s. The Vatican opened a process, found him guilty, and basically sentenced him to a life of prayer and penance. But the issue after Figati's downfall was to what extent the sodal lithium, sodality of Christian life, to what extent it reflects the culture he creates created and is in itself kind of intrinsically predisposed to abuse. And that certainly has been the accusation from critics of the sodality. Two developments worthy of note this week, and by the way, I want to note, You know, everything that goes on the correct site is good quality journalism. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. But of late, some of the best stuff we have had has been the reporting by our senior correspondent, Elise Ann Allen, footnote, my beloved, who has been covering this thing in Peru from the beginning. And she has been doing original and groundbreaking reporting. And you really should check it out. Anyway two items that Elise has brought to our attention in the past week. One is that a bishop, actually the only bishop who is a member of the sodality of Christian life, a guy by the name of Jose Erguren. Erguren? I'm right again, how about that? So Bishop Erguren, archbishop brother, showed up in Rome this week unannounced and for no reason that anyone gave us and had a meeting with Pope Francis. Nobody said what they talked about. You know, we we don't really know what went down, but worthy of note, and in particularly in context of the second item, Elise has reported on, which is that a lawyer who is representing survivors of abuse in the Sotolithium in civil cases in Peru has said and by the way, this just says out loud something that has been kind of an open secret in Peru for a while, that the Vatican has a case regarding the sodalitium in its hands, has for a good long while, and that that may be heading to conclusion, and it is possible that the Vatican could simply suppress the sodalitium, that is, turn out the lights, the party's over. You know, we, we will see, but Word is, and this lawyer confirmed it, that a decision is expected sometime soon. So sometime in the coming mo- months, the sodalitium will know its fate. In the meanwhile, this is yet another chapter in Pope Francis's sort of track record on the abuse scandals, which, which is a track record in many ways full of aggressive, meaningful action and hope, and some question marks on the other side of the ledger. The Zancetta case, this this Argentine bishop just recently convicted of sex abuse that the Pope brought to Rome for no reason that he's ever given anyone. The lack of crackdowns on senior prelates. I mean, you know, there are still two Catholic cardinals in Chile who presided over the most galling sex abuse scandal in the world. Nothing's happened to them ecclesiastically. And so, as people make their assessments, about the way Pope Francis has handled the abuse scandal, what he does or doesn't do on the Sodalitium of Christian Life in Peru will mark an important new chapter. All right, that is our show for this week. Thanks for spending part of your Tuesday with us. Over the course of the next seven days, I hope you keep reading Crux. It's cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. When you visit the site, you will find a nice and easy way to make a, dosa- a donation to support this show. I want to remind you, I love doing this show. I hope occasionally you get something out of it. But this does not come free. You know, we've got this nice studio here in Rome. We've got high-tech cameras and lighting. And all that stuff has to be paid for. And if we don't find a way to generate a little bit of revenue around this show, it's going to be increasingly difficult to justify those expenses. So, If you like Last Week in the Church, if you want us to keep rolling, please, if you could, in some small way, help us out, it would mean the world. Okay, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. And if you remember nothing else from this program, rock, chuck, Jayhawk, go KU. Let's go Hawks! Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon.